Hello, this is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. We are pleased that the September podcast is sponsored by Massimo. This is an introduction to Massimo Nasal High Flow Therapy. Soft flow provides warmed and humidified respiratory gases through a soft nasal cannula to spontaneously breathing patients with respiratory distress and other pulmonary conditions. Equipped with an advanced integrated flow generator that delivers consistent flow during inspiration and expiration, soft flow is designed to enhance therapy benefits while eliminating the need to connect to an external source of compressed air. Visit Massimo.com forward slash softflow to learn more. And now I turn the program over to the Editor-in-Chief for this month's podcast. Hi, this is Rich Branson, Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. Welcome to the September 2021 Editor's Commentary and Respiratory Care Podcast. Thanks for joining us. This month's Editor's Choice is by Martina Zalejos and co-workers evaluating the impact of mechanical insufflation exsufflation on sputum volume removed from mechanically ventilated patients. In a small sample of 26 subjects, they compared sputum volume after expiratory rib cage compression with and without mechanical insufflation exsufflation. The addition of MIE increased sputum volume and resulted in improved pulmonary compliance, even though these compliance changes were short-lived. There were no differences in hemodynamic consequences or adverse events. Volpe and Gomerez contributed an accompanying editorial encouraging further study of MIE in ventilated patients, optimizing expiratory flow bias, and evaluating patient-centered outcome variables. The work by Volpe in the past looking at expiratory flow bias, which simply describes a faster expiratory flow than inspiratory flow, demonstrates that to move secretion cephalid, this is the kind of bias that's required. The use of MIE, of course, in ventilated patients requiring high PEEP might be restricted. Calais and colleagues evaluate outcomes of subjects excluded from ARDSNET studies in the application of lung protective ventilation. Mortality at 90 days was nearly twice as high in the group of patients excluded from ARDSNET trials. In both groups, adherence to lung protective ventilation was associated with lower mortality. This has often been a criticism of the ARDSNET trials that a lot of the patients that we struggle with in the ICU are the ones that were ineligible for ARGENET studies because of multiple comorbidities, liver failure, head injury, etc. Muralis Cabadevia and others provide commentary suggesting that caring for patients with ARDS requires that we put our best foot forward and provide lung protective ventilation at the initiation of mechanical ventilation regardless of the degree of injury and illness. Lena et al. evaluated asynchrony before and after tracheostomy in a heterogeneous group of subjects requiring prolonged mechanical ventilation. Asynchrony was measured using automated analysis for two 24-hour periods. I think this is a good lesson going forward. Studies that, that look at asynchrony and try to make asynchrony diagnosis based on individuals looking at waveforms are probably not going to be up to snuff these days when we have automated methods of looking for these techniques. After analyzing 920 hours of ventilation, there were no differences in the number or type of asynchronies and respiratory mechanics were unchanged. This is actually different from papers um, from two decades ago, one authored by our group from Cincinnati and one from LaRombe Burchard's group suggesting that 
following tracheostomy patients had a decreased work of breathing and lower intrinsic PEEP. Kreiner comments that asynchrony index in these subjects was less than 2% at baseline and therefore making any improvements might have been very difficult to detect. Fowadell performed a bench evaluation of heated humidifiers commonly used for non-invasive respiratory support in infants. They created variable failures including disconnection from gas flow, disconnection of temperature probes, and failure to address repeated alarms alone and in combination. They determined a risk of burn scale based on the highest gas temperature. These misused cases demonstrated a severe risk of inducing skin burns with five devices and a moderate risk with one. Again, this is a bench model um, and of course would be difficult to study clinically, but gives us some information about how to operate these devices. Bertelli and co-workers compared dead space during ARDS and ARDS as a consequence of COVID-19. They evaluated the association between ARDS and dead space, respiratory compliance, and organ failures during the next 24 hours of mechanical ventilation. Using corrected minute ventilation, they reported higher dead space in COVID-19 ARDS patients. However, compliance was similar across a wide range and PEEP requirements were similar. People have speculated that micro um, thrombi in the lung may result in higher dead space in COVID ARDS. Lee and co-authors used an international online survey to determine the use of high flow nasal cannula and adjunctive aerosol therapy. A quarter of respondents delivered aerosol therapy via high flow nasal cannula while 40% delivered aerosol therapy via nebulizer and mouthpiece and a third discontinued high flow nasal cannula during aerosol therapy. They concluded that utilization of high flow nasal cannula was variable and practices associated with concomitant aerosol therapy were not consistent with the available evidence for optimal use. Schluter and others performed a retrospective analysis of the impact of body mass index on initial, res an initial respiratory support and a multi-center database from pediatric ICUs. This is a big data study. In 1,721 subjects, 36% were overweight. There was no difference in initial respiratory support between groups, but overweight subjects were more likely to require intubation after high flow nasal cannula. The authors suggest that the use of high flow nasal cannula in elevated BMI patients may increase the requirement for intubation. Of course, this is probably related to the alteration in the chest wall compliance in these subjects. Fujinaga et al. used a nationwide database to evaluate the impact of BMI on ventilator dependence. Over a one-year period, 11,801 subjects were included. 388 were ventilator dependent at ICU discharge. They found that the risk for ventilator dependence at ICU discharge increased among underweight subjects, even after adjusting for potential confounders, and that while obesity was associated with a higher risk of ventilator dependence, the association was less pronounced than for the patients who were underweight. The risk of ICU mortality, hospital mortality, and tracheostomy also increased in underweight subjects. This is part and parcel of what we've often called the obesity paradox, where some obese patients tend to do better in the intensive care unit, perhaps because of their extra reserves. Ocal and others decided the delivery of salbutamol by a jet nebulizer in the presence of biofilm from Acinetobacter in a bench model. Biofilm in the endotracheal tube had no impact on salbutamol deposition. Placement of the nebulizer between the model and a heat and moisture exchanger also did not impact delivery. Moore and colleagues performed an in vitro bench study of three nebulizers delivering inhaled tobramycin on the bacterial persistence and antibiotic susceptibility of Pseudomonas. 
They determined peak and trough convitations of tobramycin. They concluded that less efficient nebulizers did not deliver sufficient drug, resulting in suboptimal tobramycin concentrations, driving antibiotic resistance, emulating the standard on and off cycles used in CF patients. These data suggest use of approved nebulizer for tobramycin delivery is clinically important to achieve desired drug concentrations. Again, this is a bench study. Higashimoto and others evaluated the impact of pulmonary rehabilitation on the erector spinae muscles in subjects with COPD. This retrospective analysis evaluated the control group and a group evaluated after a period of pulmonary rehabilitation. Erector spinae muscles cross-sectional area was evaluated using CT. Only pulmonary rehabilitation patients reduced the yearly decline in erector spinae muscle mass. These are core muscles and are important for, for all of us, much less COPD patients. Chow et al. measured long-term adherence to non-invasive ventilation in a group of 86 subjects, collecting data from the ventilator's recordings. Adherence was defined as use greater than four hours per day versus non-adherence, which was less than four hours a day. The majority of subjects had neuromuscular disease and were treated at home. At one month, adherence was 57%, and at six months, it was 62%. But average daily use in minutes had increased. The authors concluded that average daily use may be a better measure of adherence and improve our understanding of non-invasive ventilation trials. And you can imagine that a patient with ALS over time uses the ventilator more, during, more minutes in a day um, as time goes on. Fujita and others evaluated resting breathing wakefulness and COPD as a marker of dis, you know, using the modified research council score. They evaluated 40 subjects measuring breathing pattern with respiratory inductive plethysmography and calculated instability using the coefficient of variation for tidal volume and total cycle time. The coefficient of variation for tidal volume was greater in subjects with an MRC score greater than two and was associated with exacerbation frequency. They concluded that Resting breathing pattern during wakefulness might be a tool to assess dyspnea and predict COPD exacerbations. Karthika and others provide a narrative review on quality management and respiratory care. They argue that every respiratory therapy department should have a quality improvement team to assist with the process of training, implementation, and analysis. Um, I think we'll, we'll hear more about this as it's not so much how much we do as how what we do impacts the patient outcomes. We appreciate you listening to the Restorate Care podcast. We encourage you to look at our new YouTube channel online, as well as our other social media aspects. Um, thanks for listening. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.